Welcome to the Sheila Khama Extractive Podcast. My guest today is Arti Asha. Her career has been in developing frontier businesses and solutions. In March 2020, she co-founded the Core Region Consortium advising on a closed-loop model for regenerative agriculture, renewable energy, and climate change action through gasification, among others. She is also the producer of the Oblique Global Goals podcast. From 1992 to 2016, Arti had increasingly uh, performed senior managing roles for Reuters, later Thomson Reuters in London, Nairobi, Amsterdam, and Mumbai. Arti, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Fantastic. I. I'm having a, a series of conversations around the subject of uh, the secular economy, but I, I thought it would be good to have somebody who can just help us understand conceptually what we mean. So let's start uh, right at the top. What do we mean by the secular economy? Um, sure. So I think uh, what we can do is take a step back and start with the linear economy, um, which is where we take different ingredients or inputs or materials. And let's say we make an item of clothing or a piece of jewelry or even a satellite. And once we've finished using it, we throw it away. Um, it's also where in the design, manufacturers don't focus on durability or actually even want things to become obsolete so they can just keep selling us more stuff. Um, there's often inefficiencies in manufacturing. For example, in clothing, we have pre-consumer waste where you end up with dead stock or excess textiles because of, say, the machinery we use or, or even the fashion marketing cycle. And we also don't consider the energy, whether that's where it's coming from or how efficiently it's being used or the emissions. So in summary, the linear economy is take, make and dispose. But as uh, Shailendra Singh has said, the notion that the planet has infinite resources is as outdated as the 16th century belief that the earth is flat. And um, so the secular economy is very much about using resources more efficiently across their life cycle by closing, extending and narrowing loops. Um, and I'm going to categorize it in a few buckets in the order of priority. Um, there's the rethink refuse and reduce, and that's where we produce and consume less in the first place. So as consumers, we stop focusing as much on what we want, we take a step back and become more conscious, we say no to products that we don't need or won't use, and admittedly that does require self-control. Uh, but on the production side, it's about using secondary raw materials where possible in lieu of new, let's say, copper or gold or whatever it is that we're extracting from the ground or from mines. Or, um, But it's also where we design and manufacture longer lasting materials and products. And if you're old enough, like me, you'll remember when washing machines used to keep operating for decades. Um, so in many ways, we're actually talking about going back to basics. Mm. Yeah. So the second bucket is around reusing, remanufacturing, refurbishing and repairing. And that's about upcycling items that we would previously have thrown away. Um, so it's really important that products are designed in such a way that consumers don't have to go back to the manufacturer every time 
or indeed have to pay an extraordinary amount to fix a broken item, whether it's a toaster, a lawnmower, a mobile phone. Um, and then the th third bucket is re-gifting and reselling, and that's a way of keeping products in circulation. So whether that's uh, charity shops or secondhand shops, um, there's hardly ever worn it, Hewitt, that allows people to trade in clothes. But also on the business-to-business -business side, you know, Queen of Raw has a textiles marketplace. So instead of incinerating material, um, factories and mills and retailers and brands can sell, whether it's, let's say, English tweed or Italian jacket, to buyers who can find the exact fabric they need. I think it's really important here, though, to say that we must be careful we don't actually end up buying more just because we can. I think rethinking, refusing and reducing should always come first. And lastly, recycling. I know we're going to talk about this later on. So I will just say at this point that in my work, um, factories take agricultural residues, such as tea prunings, to generate energy through gasification, which is low oxygen thermal conversion. So we're taking those high carbon residues, putting them through gasification, and we end up with electricity and heat. But we also have biochar which is the leftover, if you like, from the gasification process. And farmers can put that back in the soil. So what we're doing is we're closing the loop through these upcycled tea prunings and other agricultural residues. Um, and I guess the last thing I'll say is that the circular economy is offering a lot of opportunity, right? But it does require new skills. It does require research and development and knowledge. Uh, for example, in areas like design thinking. And of course, it requires financing. Sure. So you've said a mouthful, and I'm, I'm going to try and uh, take a lot of what you've said so we can break it down for people who are not in the science, uh, trying to remember as much of what you have said. So let's start with the difference between the secular and linear economy, because it seems to me that there is a certain either industrial mindset, consumer mindset, manufacturing mindset uh, that separates the two. Very succinctly, if you were to say the fundamental difference between the linear and the secular approach, what would it be in the philosophical rather than the executional sense? Mm. So I think it's really about keeping resources in the system for as long as possible um, in a closed loop or circular way. Right. So one person's waste can be another person's input rather than one person's waste just goes into the landfill or gets burnt. I think that's probably the simplest way I can put it. Mm -hmm. So when when you describe, for instance, what you are are doing in the agriculture space with the tea. It seems to me that wherein most of us think that waste happens when we are at the consumer stage, it seems from what you're saying that even as we are producing in the agriculture space, before we have the end product, we're already wasting. So it, it seems to me that the management then of even interim waste is, is critical to this secularity of our economy. Is that correct? 
Absolutely. So whether that's agriculture, as you quite rightly said, in the process of farming, we have residues, right? So what are we doing with those residues? That could be at the at the farm, so prunings from tea or coffee, but that could also be in the processing, so sugarcane bagasse or uh, cocoa pods, uh, coconut shells. Um, and yes, today, very often, uh, they're either left, um, in which case we end up with greenhouse gas emissions because they're dumped, or they're burnt, and we still end up with greenhouse gas emissions. Whereas if we take the step back and say, well, what can we do with these resources? Let's not even call them waste. You know, what can we do with them? Can we, for example, um, generate energy and biochar, which is what we are doing, um, then why not? Hmm. You said something else about making things that last longer, making things that can be repaired rather than merely disposed of. Let's talk a little about that. What happened to that old refrigerator that lasted? Is this uh, some disingenuous way by which manufacturers are forcing us uh, to keep buying by not giving products a long life? Or is it a failure on the part of regulators to demand that in order to relieve nature, uh, and not go back and extract materials, demand manufacturers to ensure longevity. Where is the gap? Who ought to make sure this happens? I think the gap is um, everywhere. I think the gap is on the producer's side uh, because, of course, they want to keep making money. It's not just washing machines or uh, lawn mowers. It's even packaging. 99% of the packaging that's produced today, according to Joe Chidley, is 99% uh, single use. Um, but so the manufacturers, right, they, unless they are both incentivized to do things dis differently and also penalized, uh, and that's really where the policymakers and the regulators come in. You know, they, they will just continue doing things as business as usual. But it's also incumbent on shareholders to turn around and say, look, you know, we're willing to give up a little bit of profit if it means you're going to do things in a more sustainable and regenerative way. It's also incumbent upon us as consumers not to feel that we're missing out if we don't have the latest version of the whatever mobile phone it is. Sure. So um, let's talk then about uh, the difference between the circular economy and recycling. Uh, what is the difference? One is the bigger picture, one is a component part, but what is the, the, the difference? Mm. So I think for some people, recycling is part of the linear economy and for others, it's the lowest value creating step in the circular economy. Um, so let me take a step back. What is recycling? So it's either a mechanical or a chemical process, which means it requires energy to make whatever that material is come back in the system. Now, one of the uh, results of that is because it is mechanical or chemical, it means your material does become weaker over time. So in many ways, you're uh, putting off um, the time at which that item or that material will end up in a landfill or be burned. Um, but so you are extending the, the, the life, but not necessarily by much. Um, and then strictly speaking, recycled materials or products should be used in the same way. So if you turn a PET bottle into clothing, 
that actually isn't recycling. Um, but you know, I think what's important is that um, we, we do think of it as the, the last resort, right? So today there are over 200 types of plastic and many of them are not being recycled or they can't even be recycled today. So actually the question is what can we be using instead of those types of plastic or how can we reduce the consumption of those types of plastic? Um, but e-waste is the fastest growing waste stream globally, but only 15 to 20% is recycled. Part of that is because of design. Um, so again, how do we improve the design so it's easier to break up these devices and um, you know, take out um, the sort of components which we can then sort of use to create new products? So when, when you say the lowest component, uh, it, 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 by that you mean there's a better way to address the problem because if we think recycling is the problem, what, what we are failing to understand is that actually a huge part of the problem is in the way we design the products in the first instance, such that one, they can be easily taken apart, two, that they can easily be retooled and, and reused. And that if we miss that, merely recycling doesn't solve the problem because we haven't gotten to, to the bottom of it. Is that what you mean? Absolutely. So you use the term e-waste. Can you explain to the followers what you mean by e-waste? So e-waste is electronic waste. So you imagine you have a laptop or a mobile phone or anything that has a plug or a battery, and that's an electronic item. Um, of course, I'm talking about consumer goods, but you know there, there's also electronics being used in industry. But let's for one moment just think about uh, consumer electronics. So you imagine, uh, um, you know, over the last couple of decades, as people have become more and more used to having um, laptops and tablets and notebooks and uh, mobile phones, uh, you know, we are producing an awful lot more. And actually, a lot of people hang on to their devices even after they get new ones. So we are sitting very often at home or in the office in our drawers with these resources that we're not using. Um, but if we do want to dispose of them, it's not always clear to us how and where we can. And so there are companies now actively looking at ways of retrieving these um, electronic items from offices and from homes and doing things like whether it's refurbishing or, or breaking these things apart and taking out the components if that's possible and reusing those um, different materials. It's not easy, as I said, because of the design, but yes, that's starting to happen now slowly. Hmm. So one of the, the interesting points you did in, in your very comprehensive overview of what we mean by the circular economy is that First of all, you recognize the role uh, and contribution or made by uh, manufacturers to the problem. And then you recognize the contribution made by governments and the regulatory space, and then the contribution made by consumers who overindulge uh, and, and don't have the recognition of the impact of their overindulgence on the environment. How can we make sure that the average person understands that we can't stand apart and point a finger at manufacturers and others and think somehow 
that this problem is imposed on us and instead recognize that there's a lot we can do in terms of our behavioral change that could add uh, to the institution. How can we infuse that awareness? So I think there are, there are different ways, right? And, and that's why I actually started with the consumer when I was you know, going through my description. Um, but, you know, in Europe, for example, there's a coalition um, uh, which represents over 100 organizations from 21 countries called Right to Repair Europe. And they're advocating for system change around um, repair. So it, you know, the, the organizations they represent include community repair groups, spare parts distributors, re repair and refurbishing businesses, and even sort of self, you know, in individuals who are repairing their own things, right? So it's really society organizing itself to make repair affordable, accessible, and mainstream. Um, and then uh, another organization, again, in Europe is iFixit. And they've uh, published more than 50,000 free online repair manuals, which are actually publicly editable so that people can fix their own stuff and save money while keeping those electronics out of landfills. So, you know, there, there's those types of organizations. I think also, remember, even in, you know, uh, where I am in Nairobi, you know, you go to a car garage in Nairobi, they can fix anything, you know, I mean, health and safety might not always be top of mind, but they do keep um, vehicles on the road. And, you know, um, in the global south, generally, I think we are in many ways, better at keeping materials and products in the system, quite, quite often, it's informal, you know, so you could have your curbside cobblers or you could have your expert darners sitting in tiny workshops somewhere. Um, so I think as, as consumers, um, we, we just we do need to keep reminding ourselves, you know, uh, while when we're purchasing something, you know, how carefully are we making that purchasing decision when we are looking at something that's broken? How quick are we to repair versus throw you know throw it away um and i i also think that you know waste we often don't realize where this waste ends up i think we just have to be so much more conscious i mean i'll give you another example right with water water everyone thinks oh well it, it it's it's essential for life but if we are not recycling wastewater, um, then, you know, if we have untreated water and you put it back in the system and it's not safe, you're going to end up with all sorts of diseases, right? And, um, you know, in Latin America, 70 to 80% of wastewater is not treated. But even in the UK, the UK has huge pollution issues because it can't manage its water. And, you know, closer to closer to home after the water shortages in Cape Town in 2018, households started grey water recycling. So it does mean on the one hand they can't drink the tap water, but they can otherwise use water from within their own sort of compound, if you like. So I think there's lots of different things we can be doing as individual consumers, as households, as neighbourhoods, as local government. It doesn't even always have to be sort of national government or so you know um supranational governments i think there's a lot we can be doing ourselves hmm. so um, you you made reference to the difference between the global south and the global north uh in that 
on some level, there's a lot more repair taking place uh, in the global south and perhaps uh, in the north people are too quick to dispose and go and buy a new one. Uh, and, and I think you're right, but I wonder, is that a statement of awareness or is it just sheer poverty? You know, the, uh, you know how they say uh, necessity is the mother of all inventions. So the people are poor, what are they gonna do? They can't just go and buy it. Uh, the other thing, of course, is that the very North not only throws things away, a lot of the stuff ends up in the South, uh, mm -hmm. wherein the South has become a dumping ground. So, mm -hmm. so what I'm recognizing here is a, a complete lack of coherence between the North and the South in the way that we see the problem, in the way that we address it, in the way, in the way that, it, you know, it, it is founded in that in the north it's founded in affluency, in the south it's founded in poverty. Am I right? So I mean, I guess with any of these things, right? You in the global north we also have people on low incomes, and in the global south we also have people who fly around in private jets. So it, of course we we are talking we are sort of generalizing, but I think there are challenges I mean a, a couple of examples right we talk about a lot of textiles ending up in countries like Ghana or Kenya um supposedly secondhand clothing which actually is very close to <laughs> the end of its life and uh, and um a lot of it ends up in landfills or being burnt but only after it's been um, received in these countries at the same time there are efforts and I'm not saying they're perfect but they're, I would consider them to be work in progress, but there are policies like extended producer responsibility. So the OECD defines that as an environmental approach in which a producer's responsibility, so the manufacturer or the, the company producing that product, so their responsibility now extends to the post-consumer stage of a product's life cycle. Let's take an example, if you're buying um, drinks in plastic bottles or indeed you know later on I hope that we start talking about if you're buying clothes what happens after that person has stopped consuming that particular product um, and it becomes more complex when it's cross-border um, and also when there are weaknesses in the system right because there are there are rules around what can be shipped from one place to another. There is a thing called the Basel Convention, for example. But you know, are people adhering to those um, rules and regulations? Um, and uh, is, let's say, that trade, if we're going to call it trade for one minute, uh, of those secondhand goods, is that, you know, what are the consequences of that trade happening? So are you killing off local industry um or are you actually helping people buy goods they couldn't otherwise afford so it it is complex i don't think it's easy to sort of come up with a blanket answer i think you need to sort of take it on a case by case basis but one area that i you know i'm looking at at the moment is textiles and textiles sort of ending up in as i said you know places like kenya um Yet Kenya produces clothes through the U.S. Um, AGOA, which is the agreement that allows African countries to export textiles to the United States. It exports, uh, well, it produces and exports um, clothes from Kenya. Um, and I'm thinking, well, 
you know, how, how do we handle all of this, right? How do we, there is a percentage of those clothes um, that are, that they're allowed to sell on the ground in Kenya. Are they suitable? Are they affordable? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, I think, a question of sort of policymakers, but also companies and communities all sitting around a table, not easy, but sitting around a table and saying, well, actually, you know what, this is what we need, and this is how we want to do it. Mm. Do we have a sense of um, whether the secularity of an economy is likely to lead to uh, a greater cost being passed to the consumer than is in the current linear economy or not? Do we have a sense of which one is more affordable for the average person? So again, it's, it's not an, a sort of one size fits all answer. And I think policy has a huge role to play in this. Let me give you an example. If you produce tea today in Kenya, you are incinerating fuel wood. So you're, you know, of course, trees grow back, but they take time to grow back. And the, but more importantly, you're using incineration, which causes a lot of um, pollution. And it's not great for the environment or for the climate. Now, if you were to replace that with a, a, a way of uh, basically decarbonized heat, that is going to cost more. So who pays? You know, um, and I think in the tea sector, it actually should be the middlemen, the retailers that should be paying because they're making an awful lot of money today. The end consumer might pay a little bit more. On the other hand, if you started taxing incineration and incentivizing gasification or other ways of decarbonizing heat, then that's a, the government's role. Then actually, maybe the current way of producing tea becomes more expensive than the new way. So I know I'm, I've said quite a lot, but what I'm saying is that there, there are many things to look at. There's the whole value chain. So going from the producer to the consumer, where are the levers to uh, cut costs or increase costs or, or absorb costs? And then within that as well, where are the policies which incentivize good behavior and tax what is toxic or tax what you want less of? Absolutely. Here's my last question to you, if I may. What do we mean by carbon capture and, and how does capturing carbon help protect the environment? Mm -hmm. Gosh, that's, I think very succinctly, carbon capture is where we use different technologies to remove carbon dioxide. And it's not just about capturing or removing, it's also what you do with that carbon dioxide. So we often refer to it as carbon capture utilization and storage. And it's different from reducing greenhouse gases where you're cutting down on industrial processes or flying or wasting food, et cetera. For me, carbon capture falls into two areas. And I'm going to talk to you about the one which I'm working on, which is, um, where you're removing carbon dioxide while also doing something useful, such as rebuilding soils or growing food for humans and animals, right? So we're looking to do that through nature-based solutions called enhanced weathering, uh, which Sheila, for you, will be very interesting because that's using mining waste, quote unquote, uh, plus biochar, uh, which I've already talked about, and soil organic matter. So if you think about the natural process of weathering, that's where acid rain falls on rocks, 
those uh, become bicarbonate. And so we're removing carbon dioxide already, but that's very slow. The natural way of doing it's very slow. Enhanced weathering is where you accelerate that process. And those rocks, let's say the silicate ones we have in East Africa from all the volcanic activity, they have minerals. And what are minerals? Minerals, are uh, the good ones are nutrients, right? And they replenish the soil and ultimately the plants and humans and livestock. So what you're doing is you're producing better food through better soils. And in the process, you're removing or capturing carbon dioxide and you're storing it for a long time. Um, that's one. I think the one that people think of more often is where if you've got power generation or if you've got industrial facilities that use fossil fuels, that's where you are capturing that those carbon dioxide emissions. Um, and you're, um, you, you know, you might be using them locally uh, or you, you might be compressing that carbon dioxide and transporting it. Uh, and it could even be injected into deep geological formations such as depleted oil and gas reservoirs or coal, bed, coal beds that can't be mined or saline aquifers. Um, now, one of my colleagues here in Kenya, uh, Dr. Lydia Alaka, has published research on injecting carbon dioxide in Kenya's Rift Valley. But what we are doing through enhanced weathering is in many ways it's the other way around. So it's taking those shallow rocks or those mined rocks crushing them to increase the surface area and we're sequestering carbon dioxide um, that way. Um, and I think the last thing I'll say, because we could talk about this for hours, but I think you know, carbon dioxide uh, or carbon capture utilization and storage is not without its controversy um, because um, at the end of the day, we do need to capture 1.2 billion tons or 1.2 gigatons of carbon dioxide every year by 2050. Um, and at the moment, we're capturing about 4% of that goal. Um, people will tell you, yes, but we're, the technology is improving and we're doing more and more of this. We've got projects in China and the US and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, it can only get better. But I think we just have to um, also be careful that it doesn't give us the excuse to keep pumping oil and gas when there could be alternatives like um, renewable energy. And how car capturing carbon protects the env environment is at the end of the day, you're removing greenhouse gases, which are causing global warming and all the other climate change impacts. So by removing um, the, uh, that carbon dioxide, you are helping to slow down the impact of climate change. We're going to have to do a hell of a lot more work uh, before we can, we can even think about reversing climate change. Fantastic. Well, uh, Arti, that was uh, uh, really quite insightful. Thank you very much for speaking to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. It's been a pleasure.